Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this Old Testament reading, this psalm, this gospel. We, we pray that you would come now and speak to us. Uh, as a church, speak to us individually. Let us hear what you have to say to us that we might be uh, challenged and encouraged and equipped and sent out into the world uh, on your mission. So Lord, um, meet us as we need to be met. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So I was thinking about this scripture text this morning. I mean, it's, it's, it's on the surface what this psalm is about, right? This sense of being alone in the world, being absolutely lone, lonely, being forsaken, being, feeling abandoned. Verse 11, trouble is near and there's no one to help. I wonder if you've ever felt that way. I know I've felt that way throughout my life. Uh, even in my life of faith, there's been moments, certainly, where I've really resonated with Psalm 22. One such time was in 2005. It was a, the series of events that happened in my life. Uh, my, my stepfather had uh, relapsed into addiction, which caused, uh, obviously, marital strife, as well as um, just financial trouble. We ended up lo- losing our house. Uh, the next year, my mother had a uh, cardiac arrest and was in and out of a coma, in and out of like multiple code blues, and ended up in uh, with severe brain damage and ended up in a nursing home and is still there in that nursing home in, in a bed um, with no motor control and very little um, memory and ability to speak. It's like talking with a three-year-old. And in that time, my, uh, my college girlfriend, her family became like my surrogate family, and then they moved. And then she broke up with me. And then my stepdad and my little brother moved halfway across the country. And so there I am, somewhere like in the spring of 2005, on my knees, crying out. And I didn't use these words in the, of Psalm 22, but I could have. They, they would have been appropriate. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I wonder if you've ever felt that way. One of the great things about this psalm is it doesn't actually tell us the exact circumstance in which David wrote this psalm, which allows us to imagine ourselves as the psalmist. We can put our own life experiences and situations and crises into these, uh, into these words of the psalm. But that's, that's the big idea. What do we do when trouble is near, but God seems far? And what the psalmist ultimately wants us, he, wants to, he doesn't want, to, want us to deny what we're feeling, deny what we're experiencing, but he wants to take us through that to this beautiful truth that God will never abandon us. God will never abandon us. So first, let's look together at the psalmist's lament, his, his experience, what he's feeling, what he's going through. Let's look at this together. Uh, one thing you, I might point out to you is that there's, these, there's this sort of rhythm to this psalm. There's three cycles of complaint and lament, followed by some sort of um, address to God and reflection on God. So for the first two verses, and, and the complaints are, are lengthening as you go through the psalm. At first, it's just two verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Why are you not responding to my groaning? And then, then, he, then he sort of like, it's like he's having a battle with himself, and he reflects on, but you are the Holy One. You are enthroned on the praises of Israel. But then he goes back to his complaint, and he talks about um, the, the, uh, the despising of the people all around him. So there's this sort of rhythm happening. And then, it, and then it just abruptly changes in verse 22 to this song 
of praise. So that, that might be helpful to know as we go. So we're going to look at those complaints, then we're going to look at those sections that tell us about God, and then we're going to end with that section of praise. So the psalmist's experience of loneliness and abandonment. In verse 1, I mean, I, I love how raw this is, because he doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't, he doesn't feel like he has to warm God up before he's, you know how sometimes you're in a conversation with someone and you have something hard to say, and you sort of beat around the bush for a little while and try to figure out the right way to say it, and then eventually just forced to come out and say it. He doesn't do any of that. He just says, God, you've abandoned me. It's almost accusatory, right? We, we use the word forsaken in the ESV, but it, that's, like a, that's a real churchy word. If you look at the, some other translations, they just say abandoned. That's, that can capture our heart and hit us in the heart, I think, a little bit more clearly. The psalmist feels like God is far away. He says that in verse 1. Feels like God's not listening anymore. He says that he's been groaning. That word, uh, the Hebrew word for groaning there, when it's used literally, it's the roar of a lion. It's not that he's like, oh, Lord, help me. He is screaming at the top of his lungs saying, God, help me. Where are you? He's utterly, feels utterly abandoned. He feels utterly abandoned. God is so far away. God is so silent. God seems so unmoved. Not only that, he's despised by, by the people around him. Look at those verses six through eight. He, he's even despised, he even despises himself, right? He says, I'm a worm. I'm not even a man. I'm a, I'm a worm. I'm, I'm the thing that eats rotting food and, and decaying bodies. I'm, I'm not even, I'm nothing. I'm the, maybe you felt this way, I ruin everything. I'm the problem. And, and, and then the people are piling on. Mocking his faith in God, mocking his uh, trust in God, mocking his belief that God delights in him, mocking God's love, right? There's a poem called uh, Solitude by Ella Wheeler Wilcox, and in the second stanza, it, it goes like this. Rejoice and men will seek you. Grieve and they turn and go. They want full measure of all your pleasure, but they do not need your woe. Be glad and your friends are many. Be sad and you lose them all. There are none to decline your nectared wine, but alone you must drink life's gall. Have you ever felt that way? It's like when you really needed a friend, when you really needed help, there was no one. That's what the psalmist is going through. And, and moreover, these people, it's not just that they're mocking, but they're, they're, they're arrayed against him. They, they want to see him fail. They want to see his life fall apart. He describes them as like wild animals, right? Like, like a bull and like a lion, like a wild dog. They're seeking to devour. And his flesh, have you ever felt like, I just don't have it in me? Have you ever said that, right? I just don't know if I can do it anymore. I just know if I can, I don't know if I have the, the emotional stamina, the energy. That's where the psalmist is at. And, and it's important for us to look and in, in sort of um, clearly and closely at the way that he's praying. Not because I'm trying to just... Um, take all the power out of the poem of the psalm, but because just how it applies to our life, look how unvarnished this prayer is, right? Look how unsanitized this, plan, this prayer is. I know, I'm sure there are many people here this morning who are going through something, but they feel it's like a subconscious thing that happens to you that when you step onto the campus of the church, you feel like you have to pretend like things are going better than they are. You have to fake it till you make it. And this psalm says, no. Tell God, God already, first of all, he already knows how you're really doing. 
right? He knows better than you know how you're really doing. But just be honest with God. Say all the things that feel like you shouldn't say to God. Be totally, totally transparent. The Bible is so honest about the struggles of life. It's so honest about the effects of sin, of our sin and of other people's sin. It is so honest when it invites us to pray as we actually are, not as we think we need to be. So first, it teaches us um, to pray unvarnished, sincere. You know, it's okay to pray that way. It's okay to pray that way. Let me say it as a statement. But it also teaches us that ultimately all our emotions, all of our experiences are about God. You might, if you're, if you're old enough, you will remember James Carville's um, uh, sort of theme statement for Bill Clinton's um, campaign. It's the economy, stupid. You guys remember that? I want to paraphrase that in a nicer way. Um, it's about God, beloved. It's about God, beloved. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're facing, um, ultimately, it's not actually your circumstances that are the thing that's troubling you deep, deep down. It is these deep longings that you have for God and these deep questions you have about God. Look at how the psalmist talks about it. He says that God is far away in verse 1, verse 11, verse 19. He says that God seems silent and unmoved, verse 2, verse 11. He, he, uh, it's the psalmist's trust in God in verse 8 that is being mocked and questioned. And then in verse 15, he says it is God. It's actually God who lays him in the dust of death, verse 15. The psalmist is, whatever the situation in, in the quote-unquote real world that's happening, the struggle that the psalmist is having is, is God there? Does he care? And can he actually help? At the bottom, it's about God, beloved. Deep down, and and that's the great thing about the Psalms. They teach us that all of our experiences, they're not something to be denied. They're not something to be whitewashed over. They're not something to be ignored or sort of beaten down by verses that say, like, be joyful in hope. They They are experiences and emotions that we go through so that we can discover who God is for us, so that we can discover that he does have answers to those longings and to those questions. So as we look at the psalmist's experience, his lament, his sense of abandonment, we learn that we can pray like he prayed, and we learn that ultimately it's about God, beloved. So how do we respond? What do we do? Because we don't want to stay. The psalmist doesn't stay on his knees in the dark, right? So what can we do? He tells us a couple of things. First, we can remember God's character, your circumstances have changed. God hasn't changed. This week at VBS, the kids learned the first lesson on Monday. Any, any kids? What was the first lesson? Jesus is, Jesus is holy. That's where the psalmist goes. Verse 3, God is holy. He's the creator. He's the almighty who made everything. God is not, God is not changed. God is still able. God is, uh, Psalm 139 interestingly, of David, right? So in another place, so right here, David's saying, where is God? In another place, David says, if I ascend to the hill, you're there. And if I go down in the pit, you're there. So God hasn't changed. He's holy. He's almighty. He's good. He's enthroned. He's the awesome one who's enthroned on the praises of Israel. He's able to help. And he's God and we're not. 
Just like we get to be our true self in bringing all of our experiences and emotions before God in prayer, God gets to be his true self, which means he does what he thinks is best, and he works out his plan of redemption and salvation for us, and that sometimes the things he comes up with we never would have imagined, like sending his own son to die in our place and to defeat death and hell and Satan and sin through the death of his own son. That's not something we would have thought of. God is able and God is free. He is the Holy One. You know, sometimes we think of holiness as like this delicate, fragile thing, as if in the Old Testament, um, people had to, be, you know, treat God with kit gloves because they might tarnish him in some way. That's not how the Bible thinks about holiness. Holiness is like having a tiger by the tail. It's, it's powerful. It's wild. God is consistent, but God is also unpredictable. <laughs> he is able to imagine and to accomplish things we never would have thought possible. It, when we say we need to be um, we, God's holiness, it's not like he's a, he's a family heirloom, heirloom Tiffany vase. It's like he's the, the nuclear code's football that the president has. He is the holy one. Jesus is holy. Verse 4 and four, verse 5, Jesus is also, God is also trustworthy. You see that three times in verses 4 and 5. My forefathers trusted you. Those who have gone before me, they trusted in you. He doesn't say which exactly people he's thinking of or which mighty acts of salvation that he's referring to in the scriptures, but he might have been thinking of Abraham, who believed God when he said, follow me and I will take you to a place that I will show you. And God was faithful to him and Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He might be thinking of the people of Israel down in Egypt land, who, by the way, were there for 400 years crying out, and then God delivered them. He might be thinking of Hezekiah, who saw the armies of Assyria surrounding the city of Jerusalem, and he prayed, and the army of the Lord showed up and delivered them. God can be trusted. Jesus is holy. Jesus is trustworthy. He keeps his promises. He promises, I will never leave you as orphans. If you have faith in me, I and my Father, we will make our home with you. You are never alone if you are a follower of Jesus. Jesus is holy. Jesus is trustworthy. Remember God's character. And then also remember God's history with you. You know, sometimes we're going through something in our life um, and we, become, we get tunnel vision, right? And all we can think about is the crisis that's in front of us or surrounding us. And we begin to say things like the psalmist, God, where are you? I don't hear you. I don't see your power. You feel far from me. But just because we're feeling that in the moment doesn't mean the times when we did feel God's presence or did see God's power or did hear God's voice are somehow now invalidated. Right? Psalm, look at the psalmist, Psalm 9 and Psalm 10, or verse 9 and verse 10. He remembers how God, from his womb, he has known God. God is the one who chose him. He didn't choose God. God chose him. He has a pre previous relationship, an ongoing relationship with God. And this crisis is not the only thing to be considered in the faithfulness of God. Look back and remember God's history with you. Look back at the times when God has answered your prayers, when God has showed up in a mighty way, an unexpected way, when God has spoken to you, given you wisdom, or guided you. Remember God's history with you. Don't, be, uh, don't have a, what have you done for me lately? God mindset, but remember all the things he has already done. So remember God's character, remember God's history with you. And then finally, hope, 
in God's rule. So we have these complaints and these reflections on God. And finally, in verse 19 and 21, we have the clear petitions. God, save me from the lion. Save me from the bull. Save me from the dogs. And you have rescued me. And there's this abrupt shift, right? It turns to praise, verses 22 to 31. Pouring out praise on God. And yet again, it doesn't tell us exactly what God did, right? We don't know the exact problem that David was facing, and we don't know the solution that God brought in his answer. And I think that's actually because that part's not that important. Because what the psalmist points us to is beyond his situation to the hope of God's rule. Look, look at verse 26 and you'll see what I mean. The psalmist points us to the kingdom of God. Verse 26, he begins to talk in these um, these phrases that are eschatological, that they're, they're like the end of time, the end of days, God's ultimate um, purpose for the world. He says in verse 26, may your hearts live forever. Talking about eternal life. He, he talks about God's kingship over all the nations in verse 28. God wasn't king over all the nations in David's day, but someday he will be. In, in verse 29, uh, he talks about the resurrection to new life. The one who could not keep himself alive will eat and worship. He's pointing us to the future. He's pointing us to the kingdom. And this is one of the great reasons why, third thing from VBS, Jesus is worth following. Because this life isn't all that there is. This world isn't all that there is. And the suffering that we face, and the hardship, and the illness, and the strife, and the enemies, and the whatever it is, even death, doesn't have the final say. But God is going to bring his kingdom into the world. We say it every week in our Eucharistic prayer. Our hope is not in God alleviating our circumstances, but that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Jesus is trustworthy, and he's worth following. You can have this same hope. You know, this hope isn't just for people who grew up in the church, or people in a certain socioeconomic, or racial, or ethnic, or political, or whatever. It's for everybody. Look at how the psalm uh, foretells the gospel. You know, the Bible tells us about our own sin. It tells us that we are consistently and constantly breaking God's law and worshiping petty gods like money, sex, power, pride. And that because of that, we are in danger of an abandonment that is far worse than whatever the psalmist is going through and far worse than anything you or I have ever experienced in this life. We are in danger of being spiritually alone, spiritually cast out from the presence of God because of our sin. And yet, we know from the Gospels that Christ came, that he was forsaken so that we could be forgiven, that he was the one who was pierced and surrounded by enemies and mocked and appeared to not be able to save his life, but was raised on the third day. Jesus is forgiving. He has trampled hell and Satan under his feet. And now, because of that cross, because of that resurrection, our suffering, our sorrows, our sense of abandonment does not have the last word because we look, we hope in the rule of God. And and you might say, yeah, I don't know if this applies to me. I don't know if I could believe that. I don't know if God could forgive me what I've done or what I haven't done. But look, look at 
Look at what the psalmist says, verse 27. All the ends of the earth will worship God. You know, all, that, that would include all the enemies of Israel, right? That would include the Philistines and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and later the Romans. All those who have arrayed themselves against God and his people. All the ends of the earth. All the families of the nations. Every, people from every background. The prosperous, verse 29. The afflicted and destitute, verse 30. Genesis 16, 7 through 15, that's why I chose that Old Testament reading for this morning. Hagar, this person who who shows up in a very narrow slice of the Old Testament story. She's She's a Gentile. She's a concubine. She's cast out from her family. And yet, her child's name is Ishmael. God has seen my affliction. And she calls him the God who sees me. Even Even Hagar, who disappears into the pages of history. God sees and hears and calls. So whether you're from a church background or whether you you brought your family to VBS just so you could get three hours of peace and quiet, (laughs) this message is for you. Jesus is holy. Jesus is trustworthy. Jesus is worth following. Jesus is forgiving. And Jesus is for everyone. And because of that, we have a great hope, even when we face suffering and sorrow. This hope, this promise, God will not abandon us, is ours. It's it's for anyone who will do what the psalmist says and turn to the Lord. Have you turned to the Lord? Do you need to turn to him again this morning? I know I do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word, which is so rich and so deep, ministers to us, each individually, I'm sure there, there are a million different messages that you have to say to us this morning. Lord, would you help uh, your gospel to sink down deep in our hearts, that we would be encouraged, that we would remember, even when we feel utterly alone, God, even when we feel surrounded and despised, that we would remember that our circumstances have changed, but you haven't. Not forget all the good work you've done in our lives, and Lord, most of all, that our hope is not in this world, but in what Jesus will do when he comes again. So Lord, we lift these prayers, I lift these people to you, in Jesus' name, amen.